This is The Guardian. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's been three years since the UK officially left the European Union. It is done. We are out, officially out of the European Union after almost half a century. I would say that things are looking pretty dire since we left the EU. Living standards have fallen, the economic outlook is bleak. The government still denies there's any link. The number one factor that is impacting people's living standards, inflation, caused by high energy prices as a result of a war in Ukraine, Mr Speaker. It's got nothing to do with Brexit. With the public mood apparently swinging towards regret, are we at the start of some kind of Brexit reckoning? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's Raphael Baer and The Guardian's Brexit correspondent, Lisa O'Carroll. Hello to you both. Hello, John. Hello. Hi. We are talking about Brexit this week, partly because the 31st of January was the date we officially left the European Union back in 2020. But just as a sort of starter, I was curious to know where each of you uh, were the morning after the referendum. And I'll, I'll give you my answer. I was at the Glastonbury Festival. It it cast this very sort of weird pall, this really weird mood suddenly. It's already quite sort of muddy and downcast festival. It wasn't necessarily a vintage Glastonbury year. But according to legend, the way that everyone on the campsite parts of the festival site had learned that the referendum had gone the way it had, was that from about three in the morning onwards, they just kept hearing expletives from other tents <laughs> firing around the fields. And then at that point, after a few Fs and Ss and Cs, they sort of knew that the bad thing had happened. And my weekend really never recovered after that. Lisa, where were you? John, I was at Glastonbury as well. Were and you? I think I was the only one in the Guardian Porter cabin watching the results come wow. in. And I went to the tent and, of course, you couldn't sleep. And I think I had put my tent up and there was nobody around. And then by the time half past six came along, there were people with guy ropes over my guy ropes with whispers coming out. Oh my God, we're going to have to marry a French man. What's <laughs> going to happen? So yeah, it was a memorable morning. Yeah. And you uh, and a, a light bulb appeared above your head and you thought, new job. <laughs> and by Monday you were in post. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Raph, where were you? I well, I filed at 
three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> I wrote a rapid, wow. I wrote a piece uh, about the reaction and I was in Westminster and I remember I didn't sleep at all. And I remember the, uh, all right, is, uh, you know, when you sleep deprivation really wrecks your memory. So I don't, I don't have it back in my head, but the thing I remember most of all is Cameron uh, coming out of number 10 uh, with Samantha and so, and immediately turning to the person next to me saying, oh, he's resigning, isn't he? Because she was there and thought, that's what you do when you're resigning. We knew he was gone before he'd opened his mouth. But, but yeah, so I, I, essentially I had that sort of adrenaline surge of this is a massive story that I had to write. And only then really could I start to process the fact that on a personal level, I was sort of infuriated and quite upset by the result. Anyway, today... We will be talking about what the latest polling of public opinion can tell us or not about attitudes towards Brexit. And we've we found quite possibly the only supporter of Brexit on The Guardian. I don't know whether that's quite true. To talk about, anyway, whether there are any possible positives to be found in our exit from the EU. Let's talk about public opinion, first of all. Outside Westminster, the balance of opinions about Brexit seems to be changing We've recently seen opinion polls suggesting that a pretty startling proportion of people, a majority even, in the UK now think it was wrong to leave the EU. Now, something happened on this score this last week. On Monday, the political and social commentary website Unheard published the results of a huge poll involving 10,000 people. The people who'd done that poll estimated the share of voters in all the country's constituencies who either agree or disagree with the idea that Brexit was a mistake. And they concluded that in every constituency, more people now regret Brexit than think it was a good idea. There are only three exceptions in the whole of the country, in a very small patch of England in Lincolnshire. Louth and Horncastle, Boston and Skegness, and South Holland and the Deepings, the beautifully named Deepings. Now, I know... uh, that how people feel about Brexit is way more complicated than opinion polls tend to suggest. That one I just mentioned being no exception. And I guess I know that because for at least four years, I spent most of my working life talking to people about nothing else. Now, by way of illustrating the complexity behind support for Brexit, I think it's worth listening to some conversations I had in Stoke-on-Trent back in 2016 In Stoke-on-Trent, the Leave vote eventually came in at 69%. And I have very vivid memories, among other things, of a man telling the then Labour MP, Tristram Hunt, remember him, why he wasn't buying his argument for remaining in the EU. Labour's policies to remain is partly about our ceramics industry. Because what's he know about STEM? I bet he went to a private school. I bet he did PPE at Cambridge and Oxford. He comes here. It's about 15 years of Labour and it's, you know, social mobility has gone down. People realise now nothing changes. That's why they're looking for an alternative like UK. I'm good. I voted UK. I think it'd be better for Britain to leave. Do you? Yeah. For me, I think there's a, there's a lot of issues, I think, in terms of immigration, having control over your own sort of economical destiny. Some people say it might get worse, though, for Stoking if Britain leaves the European Union. They might say that, but not COVID. COVID doesn't get affected anyway, regardless. What, Everything that gets done here. Nothing ever changed here. Crap all. Every time I voted, nothing ever gets done. Stoke sort of got problems, as you see it, and it's going down here. Well, it does to me. I just feel as if probably something will get done then if if we leave. So really your argument is something's got to change and if it's leaving the EU, that's the change you'll have? Yeah, wow. yeah. Do you know anyone who's voting in? You. <laughs> Me? I'm, I, you don't know I'm voting, I'm not letting on. <laughs> yes, that woman was uh, quite correct in her suspicions. Um, I wonder, Lisa, first of all, when you hear those voices back from nearly seven years ago now, 
how do you feel? Um, I think I probably did some straw polling myself in December, John, in Wales, in a similarly very pro-leave um, constituency, a town called Ebbervale. And I just did um, a Fox Pop outside a sports centre that cost something like 15 million quid and had been largely funded by the EU. And back in 2016, I remember people being interviewed on Radio 5 Live outside that sports centre asking why they had left. Weren't you grateful enough? This town has got, um, you know, a jacuzzi of cash from the EU. What's wrong with you? So it was interesting to speak to those people, largely young, um, who were beginning to question, this is now in 2022, December 2022, why they had thought Brexit would bring the benefits that they thought it would bring. And it brings me to a point that was made exactly the same by Michelle Barney at an event I was at, which was that there was a lot of emotion involved in the vote and the same sort of patterns are seen in France where and other countries in Europe where lack of jobs and things like immigration are brought to bear in a, in a, in a vote. Each of the four or five people I spoke to in Wales said they would not vote for Brexit now. Wow. Raph, when you hear those voices, does that feel like a political moment which is over now? Uh, well, it's definitely not sealed off because you know, the, 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 the decision that was made obviously still animates politics to this day. But I think the point that you made in that interview there was very important, essentially saying, look, you know, you want a you want to hit a big red emergency stop button that will change everything, and this is the one you've got, and it's called Brexit. So that's what people are pressing, and I think that sense that for an awful lot of people, Brexit was just a a proxy for so many other issues. And yes, that moment is in the past because since then, by definition, the 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 the, the fact, the technical task of disentangling the UK from the European Union has become. Yeah, the more dominant understanding of what Brexit is. I mean, basically, we use the word Brexit to describe two totally different things. One is a national renaissance delivered by means of leaving the European Union, which is a fantasy. And the other one is Britain leaving the European Union, which is a reality. And now we're basically dealing with reality. So I think in that sense, yes, it's sealed off. You can read polls till you're blue in the face, and they're not that enlightening, as we all know. I just wonder what your sense is. Lisa talked about this a moment ago, and the experience of meeting people who now regretted having supported Brexit what your instinctive feeling is about where public opinion is on this now? Because these things are really, really, really complicated. Yeah, I think, first of all, I think you have to distinguish a, a two or three things. One is the sort of, there's a, there's a shift in just the demographics of people who are of voting age, where there are now more Remainers than there were Leavers. Some Leavers have died and some young Remainers have come of age. So there's all sorts of you know, things going on under the bonnet of that. And there's also... Remainers feel in, incredibly vindicated. So a lot of what's actually called kind of regret is actually very, very angry Remainers who always thought it was a terrible idea and feel a bit more passionate about that. You know, then there are people who actually on balance might vote differently, you know, were it to be re rerun. But that's not at all the same as saying, can we rejoin? Can we go back? Can we undo it? I think a lot of people think two things simultaneously, which sort of sum up the awful sort of immovability of Brexit, which is that increasingly they, they think or they understand Brexit as a bad idea. But the idea that it might be reopened is a sort of nightmarish one. You know, this, these are the people in, in significant numbers who voted Conservative in 2019 to get Brexit done, not because Brexit was this great shining thing. It was just shut up and make it go away. And, that, and that's, the, that's the sort of twisted nature of our national problem, I suppose, Lisa, is that, you know, increasingly people 
no, it, it was something that we shouldn't have done. But at the same time, they don't want to revisit it. I think the polls, and Ralph, I don't know what, what you're hearing, but I think the polls of the parties they're doing would, would show that Brexit is not an issue at the doorstep. And, you know, and this is, um, the, you know, in an era of war in Europe, the cost of living crisis, energy crisis, people are thinking, as ever, what's in their back pocket? And I think on both sides, both uh, Leave and Remain, there is a general, not just an ennui, um, it's more active than an active aspiration not to talk about Brexit. And it was quite interesting, Daniel Hannan, one of the architects of Brexit in The Telegraph this week, wrote this big piece, which was um, essentially warning the Leave um, readership that beware about the um, campaign to rejoin by stealth. So he's rebranding the Remainers, rejoiners. There's a huge part of the Leave, those who voted Leave, who don't want to talk about Brexit. It's been so traumatic. Notwithstanding everything that you've just said, I do have moments when instinctively I sort of feel both annoyed and surprised by how little Brexit is talked about by front-ranked politicians. In other words, I understand why they don't talk about it. This again goes back to this sort of paradoxical knot of thoughts that that one has about Brexit. But it also seems absurd that they don't. I guess it seems particularly absurd as well that the Lib, the Lib Dems, for example, who I thought would be a sort of repository for a lot of this stuff, they don't seem to be up for that either. They're, they're very, very well, reticent well, about it. Partly that. that's just a function of first past the post, isn't it? I mean, so you can yes. have a majority in the country that thinks Brexit was a bad idea and you can have an awful lot of constituencies where the, the specific voters, you know, in the southwest of England, you know, the Lib Dems were the sort of Romaniac party nationally but in their particular constituencies that was their base for a long time before 2016 they had a load of Eurosceptics there are an awful lot of Labour supporters who are very disappointed that Keir Starmer's not really banging the drum for a sort of single market or rejoin position who's not passionate enough in denouncing Brexit but the simple political calculation that Keir Starmer has made and I think in tactical terms is probably the right one is that someone who's really really angry with Keir Starmer for not wanting to rejoin the EU isn't going to express that anger by voting Tory whereas someone who actually thinks Keir Starmer secretly wants to rejoin the EU and open the door to you know a free movement and immigration might express that by voting Tory so ultimately yeah, yeah make but, that but also but also our voting system because it's not proportional means that the Labour Party's coalition of support necessarily has to be split between Leavers and Remainers. You could have a majority in the country that said we want to, you know, uh, re-establish close ties with Europe and in the fullness of time rejoin the EU. But first past the post means that the Labour yeah, Party couldn't win absolutely. on that basis. It needs the votes of people in Stoke-on-Trent and Middlesbrough and the South Welsh Valleys and places where people voted in very large numbers for Brexit. And all else follows from that. Let's talk about um, what the International Monetary Fund said this week. This week, on Tuesday, in fact, the same day that we marked three years since we left the European Union, the IMF revealed that the UK is on course to be the only major global economy that will shrink in 2023, and that includes Russia. Um, That's a very, very gloomy prediction from the IMF, to state the blind and the obvious. Um, Brexit is a factor in all this, clearly. uh, These conversations, very often in politics, resolve themselves as oh, you're saying this is all because of Brexit, and nobody is saying that. But Brexit is very, very sizable and noticeable within all this, isn't it? Uh, well, the one thing I would say, first of all, is that, yeah, I mean, the IMF forecasts aren't necessarily yeah, the, the best in the business. You know, there, there are other forecasts you know, are available, but clearly the UK economy has its own particular problems. And clearly Brexit uh, is a big part of that. I thought it was very interesting when Jeremy Hunt made a big speech on the economy at the end of last week. and 
presenting himself as the person who tells the hard truths to get the ship of state back upright again, but couldn't mention Brexit. And that fundamental contradiction there that Sunak and Hunt, their whole pitch is, OK, now we've got grown up government and we look at the evidence and we're realistic about the challenges ahead, except, you know, to use the cliche, they, the, the enormous elephant in the room that, that you know, is responsible for labour shortages, is responsible for snarling up supply chains, is responsible for high import costs, which drives inflation. So, yes, obviously, it's not the only reason. You know, in, business investment has been flat since June 2016. What happened in June 2016 that would make businesses wary of, of the UK? I mean, it's not actually rocket science, is it? You know, I wonder. You know, we all know these things. The Office of Budget Responsibility says that Brexit will have a long-term effect of cutting the UK's GDP by 4%. Uh, I recently read, I think, in the Financial Times about £100 billion in lost output and an annual £40 billion loss of tax revenue to the Treasury every year. What I wanted to ask you about, Lisa, was the sort of microeconomic stories that sit under big headline stats like that. Because you all the time talk to businesses at the blunt end of Brexit about what it's like trying to stay in business now we've left the EU. Just tell us the sort of things you hear very specifically. Yeah, I am um, interviewed a, a small firm. like It would be considered a micro business uh, employing under 10. In fact, it employs three people. But it was kind of typical of the kind of business that Jeremy Hunt or, you know, Margaret Thatcher before him, years before him, would have used to promote the, you know, the best of Britain, um, a designer designer who would come up with these really funky locks for hanging your expensive wheels, your bikes indoors. And the business was award-winning and was absolutely flying before Brexit. Brexit came along and they've lost 25% of their total business. And it's taken a huge personal toll on the owner of that company. His story is reflected you know, across the country with small to medium-sized businesses who haven't got the resilience, built-in resilience, that the bigger companies have had. And let's not forget also that the bigger companies who were really, really vocal, like the, the you know, the car manufacturing industry, the um, Airbus wing manufacturers, we haven't heard from them. We don't really know what Brexit's been like for them because their um, economic experience since 2019, 2020 has been really hit badly by lack of semiconductors, by the supply chain. And then now this year, we have like senior diplomats in European diplomats in London saying that this year hasn't been as bad as they have expected. I think it's very, very difficult. It's way too early to disentangle Brexit from, you know, all the other factors. Those stories about small businesses, because I've spoken to loads and loads of those over the last two years, that they're, they're so so real and sort of visceral that they're incontestable. When you talk about people, I mean, like small fashion business, for example, that uh, up to Brexit, depended on someone on their mobile phone on Instagram in Berlin would spot one of their sweaters, right, and would then order it and they would could be assured that they could send it to the person in Berlin on the same basis that they would send it to someone in Manchester or Sheffield and suddenly that involved form filling and surcharges and so on and at a stroke, 30% of their business just goes. And everybody has experience of it trying to buy stuff online from Europe and I think the really sad thing is that you can write these stories as a cheesemaker that we wrote about um, who ended up having to sell his business. The sad thing is that these stories have no political traction. One last thing, Lisa. It says here in my script, what's the latest on the Northern Ireland Protocol? Because this is a very, very big issue. Rishi Sunak, up to now, the impression that I've got is he has been very nervous about it and how the Northern Ireland Protocol 
may yet explode in his face, politically speaking. Um, I read this morning on the front page of a rival newspaper that we are set for a deal at last with the EU. Where, what's going on with that and, and what's the significance or otherwise of it? Well, that particular report has been um, played down by both London and Brussels. Um, I think there is still a long way to go on a deal. I think the mood music is there. Lots of media talk about the problem with the ECJ, the problem with uh, trading arrangements involving customs and physical checks. But one of the bigger problems raised by Bertie Ahern very eloquently in, in the House of, uh, House of Commons committee last week was that, you know, the unionists don't support the protocol. And if you don't bring the unionists into the tent, you have a failed deal. If you don't have unionists, you don't have Stormont, you don't have a Joe Biden visit, you don't have brilliant 25th anniversary celebrations of the Good Friday Agreement. You, you create problems if you don't do this properly. And that's what Bertie Ahern, Ahern said, you know, back in 1998 when they did the peace deal and they did much, much bigger things, got the IRA to drop their guns, released prisoners, murders of, of police officers. They did all of that. He said it wasn't perfect. But it was fair. And you've got a question. Who are the, the, you know, the courageous and brave political leaders on either side of the Atlantic that can do that deal and bring the unionists in? OK, right. Let's pause here for a minute. We're going to say goodbye to Lisa for now. Thank you for joining us. Please come back. It's lovely to have you on, Lisa. Thank you. When we come back after the break, we'll be looking at the economic picture and where all of this might go politically with The Guardian's Larry Elliott. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back. As we have mentioned, this week the International Monetary Fund predicted that the UK would be the only major global economy that shrank in 2023. That clearly is a pretty bleak picture. And it leads on to the question of whether we would be in as bad a position if we remained in the European Union. Raphael Baer is still with me. And we're now joined by The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott. Hello, Larry. Hello, John. Right, you know what I'm going to ask you first of all? And I'm not going to make this like the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> I ask you this in a, in a spirit of open curiosity. I really do. You thought Brexit broadly was a good idea. You supported it. How do you feel about it now? Well, I feel pretty much the same about it, actually. I mean, I, you know, just I don't want to hark on about it too much. I think Brexit dominates far too much of the political conversation. But broadly, my view of the economy back in 2016 was that it wasn't functioning very well, that the EU economy wasn't functioning very well, and that Britain was locked into a low-wage low growth, low productivity environment. And that was my reason for voting for a change. I wanted to see fundamental change to lift wages and to grow the manufacturing sector and rebalance the economy 
from finance to manufacturing and from London in the southeast yeah. to the regions further away from London. That was broadly the argument. And I wanted to see a Labour government or a left-wing government use the full range of economic tools at its disposal, procurement, tax, state aid, subsidies, to bring about that fundamental change. Now, could that change have happened inside the EU? Theoretically, it could have done. Practically, I think inertia meant that it couldn't have done. And there were fundamental reasons that made the EU model worse for the UK, really. I mean, obviously, over the last six years, has the UK done particularly well? No, but it hasn't done nearly as badly as the people said it would do back in 2016, the IMF, the OECD, the Treasury. I mean, it hasn't done great, but it's it's not done markedly worse than other countries. So we've had two major shocks. We've had the pandemic, which which is underplayed as a factor affecting the economy, and now the war in Ukraine. But hold on a minute. Let me let me ask you just a question about your decision to support Brexit in 2016. And I ask you that because it sort of illuminates your view of what happened since. Because in in supporting Brexit, because you wanted the sort of fundamental economic change you've just talked about, wasn't it the worst possible thing to do to place power in the hands of the leading Brexiteers who wanted to take the economy and the country in precisely the opposite direction and use Brexit to deepen everything that you objected to? No, because you know we decide who runs the country at general elections. I mean, I was in favour of uh, having a left-wing Lexit, um, but you know I thought that the left should be making the case for using the freedoms that Britain would have in a more positive way than the Tories would. I mean, I think one of the tragedies, I mean, I think this is one of the tragedies of uh, of the left, is that the, the parties of the right have actually been much more positive uh, and optimistic about the possibilities of Brexit than the left. The left has been, you know, broadly speaking, up until recently, quite uh, quite eorish about the possibilities of Brexit and just thinks everything that happens to the economy is because of Brexit. So is your position right now that, you acknowledge that Brexit has been difficult, largely because the wrong politicians have been in charge of it. But you still think that in the fullness of time, come the arrival of a different government, which understands Britain's fundamental economic problems, that Brexit is not only redeemable, but we, but we stand a good chance, if that happens, of being in a better place than we would have been had we stayed in. That's basically your position. Yes. OK, Raf, tell me what you think of that. I don't really want to relitigate the whole argument about, you know, was it a good idea economically to leave the European Union? I mean, I, I, I would say two things. First of all, I and mean, we had these arguments in 2016. Look, I, I think that there's something to my mind a bit peculiar about saying, you know, although it's a re- because it's a referendum, the proposition on this ballot paper is an ideal left wing Brexit in my head that might be available through a set of theoretical things that could happen in years to come, as opposed to very obviously the political proposition that has been put on that ballot paper by Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. I I get the theory behind it, but as a way of actually exercising your vote in a polling booth, I, I personally, I thought that was a bit perverse. And then second of all, in terms of like what's happened in the last two, three, four years, I kind of commend not even mentioning the single market in the analysis we had, just because quite obviously introducing trade barriers between the UK and by far its largest trading partner and its most integrated continental market 
is going to have an impact on trade. I mean, I understand the theory and it's possible that in 50, 100 years time, we'll look back and go, well, well, you know, that was prescient to get out of that mess. But right now, I think it's quite hard to make the case that it was the right judgment. I want to ask Larry two other questions on, on this score. Uh, I'll, I'll ask them simultaneously. The, the first one is, in the course of my life as a sort of columnist who does quite a lot of reporting, as I said a moment ago when Lisa was here, I talk to a lot of small businesses who are now faced with impossibly complicated trading arrangements that mean they, they no longer bother trading with the EU, which represented very often 30 or 40% of their business, right? And that, and that, it strikes me, is one of those things which sits under all of these dire economic forecasts and economic statistics that we read about, right? So I, I, I want to know what your feeling is about that and whether it was an unavoid, a sort of unavoidable part of Brexit or, or whether you think that was something that somehow we could have reduced the chances of happening. That's one question. And then the second one is, and I mean, again, I mean this sincerely, has anything good come of Brexit? Are there things you can point to that say, notwithstanding the turbulence and the fact that perhaps the wrong people have been in charge, these are definite good things economically that have come out of it? Well, I mean, the first point is, yeah, clearly there are going to be transitional costs of moving to a new new trading ar arrangement with the EU. I mean, I, I think that that's un undoubtedly true. I mean, at a macro level, a big picture level, our exports to the EU have recovered to where they were before we left. So, I mean, the idea that, that Britain has somehow, our exports have crashed to the EU is just simply not true. There, there are cases, individual cases of companies which have really struggled with red tape and so on, and I fully accept that. But actually, if you look at where we're, our exports are, they've recovered to where they were before we left the EU. To, to be more uh, honest about it, exports probably would have been higher had we not left the EU in the single market. That's that's undoubtedly true. But the, 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 the economy has actually adjusted reasonably well to the to, to leaving the EU, and over time it will adjust even even okay. more smoothly. On the good things, and the good things. One of the good things is it's actually handed power to wage bargainers and labour. I mean, the, one of the reasons that we're seeing a lot of industrial action is that it's no longer quite as possible for employers to actually you know, flood the market with cheap labour from Eastern Europe. And, and with the balance of power in the workforce has slightly changed in favour of labour over capital. Um, and that is a good thing, in my view. And it's a good, and people on the left okay. should recognise that. Yeah, OK. Larry, instinctively, my brain is telling me I might have that one. Right. Um, <laughs> let's move on to the Labour Party. There is a key question sort of swirling around British politics right now about what a Labour vision for Brexit might look like. We know that Keir Starmer has ruled out the prospect of the UK rejoining the single market and the customs union. Um, but there are all sorts of other questions about the Labour Party and its approach to Brexit if it wins power. Can we have a quick listen to what Keir Starmer said in a particularly interesting passage? I don't say that about Keir Starmer very often, but I'll say this now. Uh, in his speech at Labour Party conference last year. Whether you voted leave or remain, you've been let down. And with Liz Truss, the Tories are changing the mean of Brexit before your eyes. If you voted for a government to step in on your side, for better work, higher wages, more opportunities in your community, for an NHS that is modern and reliable, if you voted to take control of your life and for the next generation to have control of theirs, then I say to you, that is what I will deliver. I will make work pay for people who create this country's wealth. I will make sure we buy, make and sell more in Britain. 
I will revitalise public services and control immigration using a points-based system. I will spread power and opportunity to all our communities. And I will never be shy to use the power of government to help working people succeed. Bre Labour will make Brexit work. Labour will deliver change. And you'll never get that from the Tories. He sounds, Larry, like a, a really zealous convert to Lexitism there. It could be argued. Raf, I'll come to you first. What's your sense, given the apparently mounting likelihood of a Labour government, of what the Labour Party's approach in power to Brexit will actually be? I mean, I think, first of all, they will continue the, you know, the position that they have now, which is to keep it as, as unsalient in the political debate as possible. So you know, there are very compelling electoral reasons why Keir Starmer does not want to reopen, uh, relitigate any of the referendum type debates as we'll have to talk about the single market, because that's a conversation essentially about free movement, which is a conversation about immigration. So you know, he's, he's got good reasons to simply not go there and keep it vague. The problem that he has is during a first Labour term, let's speculate that we're in a first Labour term, there are an awful lot of things that have to be renegotiated, including the TCA itself, you know, the main free trade deal that Boris Johnson basically did with the EU. So at some point, very significant aspects of the UK's trade and cooperation relationship with the EU will be up for renegotiation anyway. Um, and so then he has to make some decisions. So the short answer to your question is, I think they don't know. I think they want it to go away and they will very, very quickly find, as Rishi Sunak and others have found now, that saying it will go away doesn't make it go away. Larry, what do you want them to do? Because the key, the key to your optimistic vision of how Brexit might ultimately be redeemed is the Labour Party, isn't it? Is the Labour Party in power? And I wonder, therefore, listening to Keir Starmer come out with that sort of you know, optimistic, but essentially quite vague and non-committal rhetoric, what you'd like that to mean in practice? Well, it sounded pretty reasonable to me, what you said. I mean, I would I would like to see a new deal for the North, the Labour government committed to properly levelling up the regions. I would like to see a Labour government commit to supporting the new green industries, the new environmental industries that could push forward the fourth industrial revolution. But I mean, I think generally, Keir's speaking the sort of language that that I support and I, I mean I, I suppose my broader answer is what's the what's the rejoiner or remainer alternative to that I mean is it to say we are going to undermine what a Labour government does politically and say that we but that nothing that the Labour government can do to actually improve the state of the economy is going to work and therefore we must rejoin the EU if so how are we going to do it on what terms and on what basis are you going to appeal to those people who voted to Brexit? Where's the plan for, 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 for sorting out the problems that caused Brexit in the first place? We are in a position where both parties are committed, to both major parties are committed to Brexit. It doesn't seem to me to be an obvious way for the, for the Remainer or Rejoiner wings to actually politically make very much purchase on the debate. Uh, no, but I, well, you say that, but I wonder whether we may eventually reach the point at which the question will be asked, well, the only way that we're going to revive this country and we're going to regenerate our public services and do a lot of the things that you talked about is by uh, hugely boosting reactivating our trade with europe you know there is a if you take if you believe this suggestion that we've lost 40 we we've lost 40 billion pounds a year in tax revenue because of brexit 
which seems to me to be reasonably credible, then that sort of underlines why that why that question's real, right? You, that you're not going to build anything like a Labour Britain unless you're in good economic shape, and the Brexit we've and the Brexit we've got now gets in the way. I mean, rejoin I think is a bit of a red herring for, and pretty much I think for the reasons Larry was intimating that. First of all, you need the EU to want you to rejoin, right? So that's not really, and that, so it's not the hokey cokey. You can't be in, out, you know, who knows, one regime comes in, another one goes out, they change their mind. I mean, I think that the moment for rejoin or remain was between 2016 and 2019, when we could have actually stayed in the European Union on the same terms. I mean, that was, that was what I think what people in the EU thought might happen, that that, that was a possibility. But the Remain side slightly balls things up by pushing too hard and lost the moment. I think now, you know, it's quite possible, John, that in 15, 20 years' time, we may say, okay, you know, we, we tried the experiment outside the EU. It it didn't work. I mean, the EU is is a declining part of Britain's trade and is, is a get ever smaller part of the global economy. I mean, I don't think in 20 years' time the, the, the our trade with the EU will be nearly as important as it has been and is today. But, I mean, it may well be that in 15, 20 years' time we have another look at it. But I think the, the, the rejoined people uh, need to dig in for as long a fight as the Leave people did after 1973. They have to recognise that it's not going to be a five- or ten-year project you know, there, there are two. There, are, I, I'm not a you know dewy-eyed Brexiteer. I see the problems of it, but I, I think pragmatically, where we are, we, you know, whether you're a Lever or, or 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 a Brexit or a Remainer, the only really sensible option is to try and make the best of it. The exquisitely brutal irony of all this is that um, of the various horrible compromises that were sort of floating around, when you look back on it. Actually, the deal that Theresa May got might have been... I, I have long thought exactly I mean? that. Like... Yes. That ship has sailed. So I'll just, I'm, I'm going to try and have one last moment of something approaching consensus. Um, it seems to me that if we're going to have a rational and reasonable conversation, however it ends up about Europe and our relationship to it, the first thing that's got to happen is that ultra-Brexiteer, right-wing, ERG, Tory, Daily Mail sort of voice has to be substantially weakened. It's impossible for either side of politics to talk about any of this when there are those voices, very loud voices, constantly scenting betrayal, right? And in that sense, the Labour Party winning the next election, whatever one thinks of Keir Starmer and how much he is or isn't going to do, that will be a step forward, you know? And that alone will be able to have a, a, a... a, a sizably more reasonable conversation about Europe and Brexit and everything that it means. And I suppose in that sense, I feel a sort of smidgen of optimism. Yeah, well, I mean, in some ways, the left-wing argument for Brexit is being helped by the fact that Tories have made such a pig's ear of running things for the last few years. I mean, you know, it looks seems to me, I, I mean, Raf know this better than I do, but it looks to me as though Labour could win by a very substantial majority. I mean, it could we could be in for not just one term, but at least a two-term Labour government by the time the Tories sort out the mess they're going to be in. And so, you know, if after the next election, the ERG people are going to be a small part of a well-defeated party. So, Unless, unless, Raf, unless it takes over the Tory party completely. 
which isn't inconceivable. Yeah, but if it does, then it's an opposition. I mean, yeah, it, it, I think that the, the extent to which the Conservative Party is sort of doing a tribute act to the sort of Trumpian Republican Party going the same way. I mean, the, the analogy can be overstated, but you sense that they are, they rather than sort of adapt to reality, they will embrace sort of populist unreality. But the important thing is, you know, because we have a parliamentary system and because of the way first past the post can distribute you know, a victory a particular way, you're not going to have the situation where you're threatened with Boris Johnson coming back as prime minister in four years time. You could have, you know, 200 Tory MPs going absolutely berserk. But, you know, so what? <laughs> They're in opposition. It could be a very interesting, very different political landscape quite soon. We've ended on a note of guarded, qualified optimism which is quite rare these days. So thank you both. Uh, we'll call it a day there. Thank you so much for joining us. Larry Elliott, Raphael Bear, Lisa O'Carroll. Um, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you did enjoy it, please make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcast. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.